Lord, you are the Lord Almighty, and who can stop you? Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that you are Lord. Today, as we have been worshiping you and lifting up our hearts and our minds to you, Lord, we pray that it's been pleasing to you. As we turn to your word now to worship you and the understanding of it, we pray that your spirit will bring its light into our hearts and to our minds. That, Lord, we will hear a word we need to hear for ourselves today. That it will be relevant. That it will be challenging. And that, Lord, um, it will speak into our life what you want to say to us. Not only as individuals, but also as a church together. And I ask, Lord, uh, that you would do this through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the year I was born, for some of you that may seem like almost a civil war, it isn't. Okay. I'm old, but not decrepit or ancient. In the year I was born, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. It became one of the Christian classics. And when I became uh, a baby Christian, my mentor told me it was one of the books I should read. And so I did. And even though the book was 22 years old, I appreciated it because there was a truth worth considering still. And that truth that I read from that book is, am I limiting God by my understanding of God? Am I limiting God in the way I am living my life, in the way I see who God is and what God wants to do through me? It's a question for us worth considering as well. Is our God too small? Is he powerless or uninvolved or unconcerned or unable to make a difference in terms of the way that you individually are living a life, but also in terms of the way we collectively as a church are living a life? The truth was the God of the disciples, the God of the New Testament was anything but small. God challenged his people to live boldly in his supernatural power. He challenged them to make a difference as he lived in them and lived through them and sent them out into the world to engage with him in his rescue plan for all people. They were making a difference. Can the same be said of you and me? A question worth considering today. Here's the big idea that I want us to grasp today. It's this, that God calls us to be bold in our mission. Now what do I mean by bold in our mission? I mean God living through us. And bold in our witness. What does that mean? Our testimony of God to others, and bold in our prayers, our dependence upon God. 
in our mission, bold in our witness, bold in our prayers. Now I'm not talking about brash, and I'm not talking about arrogant, and I'm not talking about being entitled. I'm talking about being bold, unashamed, unafraid, untamed by civilization and cultural norms and even Christian cultural norms. Living with the God who set out to rescue this world. The God who not only created it all, but who incarnated, who came and told us about himself so that we would know the truth, and then who went to the cross to die for us, to pay a price, to take upon himself the wrath of God against our sins. And then to give us his spirit that we might live the life that he intended for us when he created us with him. To let him live through us. That's the kind of boldness I want to talk about this morning. That's the kind of boldness we see in the New Testament, and in particular in today's text, Acts 4. Now we're resuming our study through Acts, or at least the first half of Acts that we're doing this year. And what we're looking at, of course, is the transformative power of God as He sends out His people to make a difference. That just happens to coincide with our mission statement as a church. That we want to send people out as empowered disciples to transform the world. And hopefully as we look through Acts, we see what God did and we see what God can do and we are encouraged to let Him live through us so that God will do it through us as He has through the church down through the centuries. Our particular text today, Acts 4, 23-31, we see a bold and vivid picture of the early church. That God is not small. They worship the living, sovereign God who created all things and who caused them to live boldly. Today, as we look at our big idea and look at this, we're going to also look at the related events that preceded it from chapter 3 and chapter 4 because they are all connected with our text. Of course, those texts are spelled out a little better in previous messages. You go to the website, you can catch up on that if you didn't hear. Let's look at the first thing. Bold in mission. What we see in Acts 3 and 4 is that God was living through his people, causing them to live boldly. Now let me say there's a difference between living for God and God living through you. Let me repeat that. There's a difference between living for God and God living through you. 
When you are living for God, you are still at the center of your life. It is still about you. It is still about you choosing and deciding what you will give to God, what you think matters to God, what your agenda is. And you will inevitably limit the power of God and your God will be too small. And isn't that what we see in so many believers? That they are living for God instead of God living through them. When God is living through you, God is at the center of your life. God is in charge. You are submitting to God and to God's agenda. And if you do that, God will continually stretch you. He will ask more of you than you can imagine, but he will, so, he will also provide and empower you in ways you can't imagine through his natural, supernatural power. When God is living through you, your God is far bigger, far greater, far more amazing than you can imagine. And your spiritual life will be bold. Now in Acts, we see the new community of faith living a new life. They have been crucified with Christ. They are no longer the master of their own ship. The Spirit of the living God is living through them. They are filled with purpose and mission living by faith in the Son of God, Jesus. We see in Acts 3 that Peter and John go to the temple. And there, as they go to the temple, they witness. The temple was a strategic place for the early church. It was their natural well opportunity. There they would worship God. There they would pray, but there they would also connect and converse. And there the disciples could witness that the Messiah had come in Jesus. As they entered, they saw a lame beggar. And this is what Peter was moved by the Holy Spirit to say to that man, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man rose up and walked. It was an incredible miracle. And the people were stunned. And the natural order. And the niceties and the religious um, demeanor went by the wayside as excitement filled people. The temple guard saw chaos. And they realized that the center of the chaos was this fledgling movement. These believers of Jesus. So they arrested them. But it was evening. They could do nothing, so they put them in jail 
And in the morning, they brought them before the Sanhedrin, the high court of the people of God. Seventy members. Now let me ask the question. How many of you would have the guts to walking by that man say, I don't have anything to give you, but in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. How many of you would really do that? You know, when I was initially a Christian, I didn't realize you weren't supposed to believe in these things, that these things could still happen. I was just moved and so touched by Jesus who had touched my heart, who had become so real, I thought, wow, if he could change my life, he can do anything. He created the world. He rose from the grave. Why can't he do that? Of course, over time I learned, that's eh, not how it works all the time. And you're not supposed to talk like that. And you're not supposed to act like that. And, you know, if you're bold like that, then people put you in another camp and they resign you to, and, you know, they're a little uh, out to lunch. Right? Those Christians. I remember in the hospital, a young boy had been hit by a car and they airlifted him to Lutheran General. And he had surgery where they removed a piece of his brain. It was already damaged. They were trying to save his life. And I remember the time I spent at the hospital with his mother and father and with him and praying. I remember coming in the middle of the night because they were bagging him. They, they couldn't keep him alive and they were trying to. And I remember God putting in my heart something that absolutely terrified me. Because at the end of that experience, when he started to breathe at 4.30 in the morning, three and a half hours in that room while they worked on him, I remember his parents going upstairs for coffee and going up there myself and God placing on my heart, go ahead and pray for a miracle. guys already had surgery. They removed a piece of his brain. Are you kidding me? But God is good. He knows I'm not very smart. So he whacks me with a two by four every now and then and makes me do what I would resist. And there I am sitting to them talking about, you know, God doesn't always do miracles. If he did, they wouldn't call them miracles. But God is able. He raised Jesus from the tomb. And if you want, we can pray for a miracle for your son. We can pray that he will not only live, but that he will be restored in his life. And they said, yes, that's what we want. Said, so then we'll pray it to the glory of God. Because when God does miracles, he does them for his glory. That's what I understand about him. And what happened over the next several weeks was nothing short of a miracle. Today, this young man lives an impaired life, but he is fully employed. 
He has a wife and two kids and is doing outstanding. And it is remarkable what happened. The doctors who had to do surgery again would say things like, I don't know how we even got through that. Except that God must have done something. Peter was bold because the Holy Spirit moved him to be bold. And we should be bold when the Holy Spirit moves us to be bold. I think what happens to us as we learn more about Christianity and as we watch everybody kind of living out our faith and as we're um, living in community to each other and as we learn some of the graces of life, right? The wildness of our spiritual belief. The innocence of what God inspires in our hearts that He is able to do far more than we can imagine, this Creator of all that is, who spoke it into existence. This Sustainer of life and Redeemer of life, who rose from the grave. We put everything in nice, neat boxes. And we develop our nice, neat theology. And we forget that God wants to live through us. And life isn't always nice and neat. And He does things beyond our wildest expectations. One of the things that I arrived at, and I told you when I came here, I was looking at my fourth quarter, wanting to see what God would do with the end of my life. And part of what bothered me was, you know, I'm at the end of 50, the decade of 50. And I remember starting out as a Christian making $450 a month. $450 a month. Even back then you couldn't live on $450 a month. And I was tithing. And I was believing God for things that I couldn't imagine, including turning me into a pastor. I'm serious. That was a six-month fight with God. Unfortunately, I lost and he lost because he got me. As I looked at my fourth quarter, I wanted to go back to that wild, untamed place where I wasn't worried about taking care of a family, providing for kids, doing all the things in life you're supposed to do, being this and being that. And I just wanted to live for God again. Without all those distractions, without all that muting, I wanted to live boldly. And I want to say to you, if you're feeling spiritually muted today, and you want to be untamed spiritually and be bold for the Lord, then ask God to free your heart and your mind and to help you to respond to His Spirit so that He can live more fully.
through you. Peter and John were living out their mission boldly. They were not living for God, but they were allowing God to live through them. This was not only true of the early church, but it's been true of the church throughout history. And it is still true today. The second thing we see in our text is boldness in witness. When I speak about witnesses, our testimonies, I'm talking about the stories and claims that witness to the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. It is most clear in Acts 4 when Peter addresses the Sanhedrin. It must have been intimidating for him. In fact, if you will recall, on the night that Jesus was condemned, Peter, confronted by people outside of that courtroom, when asked if he knew Jesus, if he was one of his followers, denied Jesus three times. Now he stands before the very body that condemned Jesus. And he does not fail this time. The Holy Spirit emboldens Peter to witness to the truth about Jesus. He has been accused of sedition, a crime punishable by death. He is unlearned in the law, a fisherman, and yet he spoke and addressed the court boldly, unashamed, unafraid, and unapologetic. Like a lawyer with exceptional skill, he redefines the accusation, not as sedition, but as kindness. He says, that man has been healed in the name of Jesus. And he tells them, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one you crucified. And if that's not enough, he says, Salvation is through Jesus alone. Let's read what he says. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. With the man who had been lame standing beside them, walking beside them, They were unable to do anything other than to let Peter and John go. They were censured, they were threatened, and they were sent away. So what did they do? They returned and reported to the church all that happened. Look at your text, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now the spirit that had made them bold in their witness to the people at the temple and bold in their witness to their persecutors, the Sanhedrin, continued to make them bold as they spoke of what happened, as they witnessed in the church, the community of God's people. They reported all that happened through the lens of the gospel. God working through them not their work for God. Consider the difference. If Peter is at the center of his story, what does Peter say? Well, you know, we're going into the temple. There's a a lame man there. So I just said, rise and walk. 
in the name of Jesus. And he did. It was amazing. People started to gather around. So I started telling them about Jesus. And then we got arrested. We go before the court. And you remember when I denied Jesus three times? Not this time. Oh no. I told them who Jesus was. And I told them what Jesus did. And I told them that Jesus is the only name through which anybody's saved. Who's the hero of his story if that's how he presents it? Peter. And the glory of God is diminished. But I don't imagine that Peter spoke like that. What I imagine that Peter said, because God was living through him, right? Is that the Holy Spirit inspired him to heal that man in Jesus' name. And God moved people to come to find out more and gave them opportunity to talk about the Messiah, Jesus. And when they were arrested, they saw that as another opportunity to bring the truth to those who need to hear it most. And when they were facing the death sentence, the Holy Spirit inspired him to speak boldly, to do what he was unable to do before. To not only give him courage, but to give him the words he needed to speak to them. And God silenced them. Who's the hero of that story? God. See the difference? We all need to learn how to interpret our life experiences in light of what God is doing through us rather than what we are doing for God. Now, one of the books that has really helped me with that is a book called Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt. And I'll just lift it up there because if it's something you want to learn more about, it's worth reading and looking at. I'm certainly encouraged by being more mindful about how I am witnessing to people so that God is the hero of the stories I tell. Here's the thing I want to encourage us to do. Boldly witness to the world and boldly witness even to the community of faith here, the church, by interpreting the stories and experiences of our life with the truth about God as the hero of our stories. The other thing I want to say about application is we need to make room for those stories. You know, we have them in our life groups and the plunge is coming up and it's really a six-week opportunity for everybody to just taste test a life group experience. That's why we call it the plunge. So we want everybody to participate in that just for those six weeks. But one of the things about a life group is we are able to share with each other what God is doing and it's encouraging as we hear that God is doing more than we can imagine. But it only excites 8 or 10 or 16 of us. We have to find ways, and I'm not sure how to do it, but who knows, maybe the Spirit of God will inspire you to come up with that idea. How can we tell our stories of what God is doing so we can be encouraged just like the early church was encouraged when they reported back and witnessed to the church what God had done? Clearly the church had greater passion. They knew that God was on the move. And clearly they were emboldened 
in their faith because of what they heard. Two things that we should note in this that are very evident in the text. First, in their prayer, they acknowledge and trusted God as sovereign over all. That's the good and the hard. Notice I resist calling it the bad. Because we look at it from a worldly point of view, we see it as bad. But when we look at it from God's point of view, it may be hard, but it's something that he can use. God is in all of those things. He is sovereign over all of those things. Let's read verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. The word sovereign there in Greek is despotes, which is a word used to describe the absolute power of a master over his slaves. From it, we get the English word despot, which means a ruler or a person who holds absolute power. They acknowledged that God was the sovereign God holding absolute power over all things. And in their prayer, they resisted asking God to take away their struggle. Look at verse 28 with me and read that. And he says of God and what he's doing, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They could have asked God to make things go easier. They could have asked God for success. They could have asked God to take away the pain or to make them safe. They didn't. They asked God to fulfill what he had predestined. Peter and John were witnessing boldly, not only to people who did not know Jesus, but also to the church who was encouraged and emboldened to greater faith because of it. This was true not only of the early church, but the church down through the history. And it is true today. The last point is bold in prayer. When the believers heard the witness of Peter and John, they broke out into bold prayer. I believe it was spontaneous and not planned. Their God was certainly not too small. Look at the affirmations of their prayer. They humbly acknowledge God is sovereign Lord who made all things. He is the God of creation. Verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They humbly acknowledge God is the sovereign Lord who said, that is, he revealed the Messiah. He reveals his rescue plan to the world. Read verses 25 and 26 with me. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. They humbly acknowledge that God is the sovereign Lord who decided. The word used there is predestined. He is in control. God even causes his enemies to do what his power and will have already decided. Verses 27 and 28. 
For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And in their prayer, they affirmed their need for God, asking the sovereign Lord to continue to live through them so they might live boldly for Him. Look at verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice what they request. They request the Lord to consider the threats against them. They want God to use it so that the good news might go forth. And notice they ask the Lord to help them continue to speak with boldness, undeterred and unafraid of threats and violence. And they request the Lord perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. They don't ask God to rain down fire, hell and brimstone on them. They don't ask God for deliverance or vengeance or destruction. They pray for miracles of mercy, confirming the good news they were proclaiming in Jesus' name with boldness. And God answered their prayers. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Prayer is essential. As believers, we know this. One of the things I so love about this church now and when I came and even before I came, how filled with prayer you all are. Not just individually, but collectively. How much we rely upon prayer, knowing that we are dependent upon God. That is an incredible witness to me, because I'm a doer. Prayer cannot be separated from living boldly. Prayer precedes us and prayer sustains us. Just as the prayers for Peter and John in the early church preceded and sustained them. So, let me say in your prayers and in our prayers as a church, let us call upon the Lord to guide us in living boldly and to provide for us so that we can live boldly. Take note of their prayer and emulate it. For their prayer was not focused on them. And our prayer should not be focused on us, but on asking God to be God and to live through us, whatever that may bring, both as an individual and collectively as a church, so that the purposes of God will be furthered and fulfilled.
My friends, you and I can live boldly, bold in mission, allowing God to live through us, bold in witness, not only to the world, the unbelievers, to those who would persecute us, resist us, but also to the church, so that the church can be encouraged and emboldened in faith and bold in prayer, affirming our need for God and asking Him to do great works for His glory. The God whom we serve and love is anything but small. Amen? Amen. He is the sovereign Lord over all. And if we allow Him to live through us, then we will live boldly in our faith. And He will be known through us, both as individually and collectively as a church. For this is what God desires for you and for me and for us together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of life that you've given to us. You are the sovereign Lord over all. You are the one who has created and you are the one who has spoken and you are the one who has decided. We affirm you in all these things, Lord. And we pray that we will let go of the old life and live the new life that you want to live through us. That that old life might be crucified. And that instead of living for you, we would allow you to live through us, to set the agenda of our days, to show us where to walk, to give us words to speak, courage to witness and stand up and engage. And faith, greater faith, that we may walk in an ever more intimate way with you so that your love, Lord, your love would be known by all people, that you would be praised as the sovereign Lord of all. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Try to answer a couple of questions that uh, I received. Um, the first was that, um, noted that um, they had asked what God had already predestined. He said, please talk about the power of prayer for something God has already planned to do. Unbelievers sometimes think the idea of a God who predestined everything contradicts any need or meaning in prayer. Now, I'm not going to profess to be um, a great theologian because I'm not. I like to focus on application and obedience. And this is what I will tell you. When I read my Bible and I look at the situation when Moses um, comes down and sees the people worshiping this golden calf and God is, he is utterly dismayed with his people and he's going to destroy them and he's going to um, make a nation out of Moses. Moses prays and intercedes for the people of God. And God relents. What God doesn't change is his ultimate purpose. God's purposes are predestined. But I think that the journey there, our prayers do matter in that. And they do make a difference. And certainly God calls us and asks us and wants us to pray. So 
prayer is a part of that process. And I would encourage you not to think, oh, God's just going to do what God's going to do. I don't need to pray. No. Pray about what matters so that you can learn about the heart of God and your heart can be moved and grown in that as well. What I find when my heart is against God's heart, He changes my heart. It's the deal. Here's the uh, next text question. How do we make God's message relevant without changing the message itself? Now, I'm not sure if we're talking about the gospel, but I think we make it relevant by talking about our lives and what that means for us to know Jesus, to come to Jesus, and to just, just to be real about it. And it's okay that maybe we don't have all the answers. Maybe we can't answer everything. We don't have to use big religious words. We also don't have to change things. We can just say them the way they are or the way we learned them in the Bible. But we do need to be able to speak about our experience because that will speak to them. And finally, what's it look like for us to practically day by day walk more by the Spirit, boldly to have God live to us? Here's what I found. Two very simple things. One is a sincere pray, prayer to be Jesus to everybody you meet during the day and try to keep that focus and ask for His Holy Spirit to live through you. If you do that, your agenda will be His agenda and the Spirit will walk through you. When I've been able to, to maneuver that, the more I do it during the day, the more I sense I'm walking in the Holy Spirit with God. So, thank you. All right, let's rise for the benediction. As I send you out to go forth, I remind you that our God is not too small. He is not uninvolved. He cares. And He wants us to care. And He wants us to engage with others. And He wants us to see where He's moving in the lives of people who aren't even aware of Him. But we can connect with them. That's our mission, to connect with people at the well, to help them grow in the Word so that they can become disciples and be sent out. So go forth now, commissioned by God to live out that mission and be a transformative agent in this world. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace, both now and on to life eternal. Amen.